0: Have you been zombified by bad ideas?
1: Do you really need to ask that question?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. I'm your host, Athena Actipas, psychology professor at ASU and um, executive producer of Zombified Media and all of our crazy platforms, including this podcast.
1: And I am your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick, Creative Director for the Psych Department at ASU. And, uh bad idea enthusiast
0: oh you love bad ideas don't you
1: I think I think I've never met a bad idea uh, that I I don't like what about you
0: <laughs> I was gonna make some quip about your relationship history but um, <laughs> I love bad ideas and bad relationships
1: <laughs> I mean I combine them I will like make relationship choices based on seeing shooting stars which I'm pretty sure is not a scientifically valid point of view right but I do it so, I don't know. Um, I like all sorts of bad ideas. Fireworks
0: so. too. I I hear that if you see fireworks, then that's a good sign in a relationship.
1: You see I've never heard that. You just made that up.
0: Well, I'm just like people say. Like there were fireworks when we met.
1: That's a metaphor. <laughs> I
0: know, okay. I'm... All right. So you are <laughs> okay. bad
1: idea filter. You you thought it was literal fireworks. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh. <laughs> oh, this is a nice little preview of just how like wild this episode is i feel like because we're talking about like bad ideas we're talking about like meta bad ideas we're talking about filters for bad ideas we're talking about what it even means to be a bad idea
1: yeah i, I mean and I, I think we eventually come up with some that i'm like oh yeah no that is a bad idea so but but there's a lot that i'm like that sound like the yeah so yeah. some, I mean, yeah. some bad
0: ideas are compelling, which is why we need mental immunity, which is kind of what we talk with Andy Norman, our amazing guest about. He has this book, Mental Immunity, where he breaks down a lot of like how we deal with bad ideas in terms of the sort of metaphor that our brains are functioning like an immune system.
1: Yes. And they get hijacked. Um Sombicide taken yeah, over. Yes. Yeah. Um,
0: Some bad ideas can be so bad that they can compromise our ability to filter bad ideas.
1: That's true. So, yeah. um, so what's your favorite part of this episode?
0: Um, I think my favorite part was uh my zombie dog <laughs> <laughs> how about you dave uh
1: i I also really i I found that a little terrifying to be honest, you know um, so you
0: got really involved in the story i know <laughs> i
1: I did well, you're laughing it off now because you've been zombified by your zombie dog. oh, I know <laughs> the truth um. Uh, all of it, you know, it's just, Andy's a fantastic guest. And I think it was just, it's so in line with what we're always talking about. Um, everything from discussing what is a bad idea to, um, I don't know, this whole idea that the tooth fairy isn't real that you guys were trying to push. Yeah, the um, truth,
0: the truth fairy. The
1: truth fairy, yeah. yeah. I think, uh it's a good time.
0: So. We, we learned so much um, from talking to Andy, and I think you all will really enjoy this episode. So I think it's time for us to jump in. So let's hear from this week's Fresh Brain, Andy Norman. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to
1: fight it, but it's something psychological with you. May act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over analytical. Regasin time to remind myself how lovely this could be.
0: But something else is taking over me. Oh. We started. We're here. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> So we are really, really excited to have with us today um, Andy Norman. Andy has written a book called Mental Immunity that is basically kind of like a handbook of like de or like at least of your brain, right? I mean, there's so many <laughs> different kinds of zombification, but uh, one of the things that we're really susceptible to is having our brains hijacked by all sorts of information that might be coming in that might not actually be in our best interest. So Andy... Welcome to Zombified.
2: Thank you, Athena. I I wish I'd come across the concept of de-zombification before I chose a subtitle for my book. That would have fit in beautifully.
0: (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) So, So, Andy, where did your interest in this topic of mental immunity come from? Like, how did this come about that you're like, yeah, I want to write a whole book about yeah. how our brains actually have something like an immune system for dealing with information?
2: hmm Well, philosophers have been thinking for a long time about how bad ideas uh, in, in, for lack of a better word, infect minds. Um, and irrationality seems to be contagious um, and so philosophers have been trying to think about how to sort of tame ir- our irrational um, impulses and the ideas that, that's, that turn them loose for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been tempted by the, by the virus immune system analogy since the early 90s. And I've been kind of patiently trying to work through the idea that the mind has an immune system of its own. That protects us from zombifying ideas when it's working properly. <laughs> and all too often it doesn't.
0: <laughs> well, I, I love this too because it's like, you know, you're using these analogies between, you know, the the immune system that protects us from, you know, viruses and pathogens and parasites um, to talk about our brains and ideas. And so like you're like a hundred percent here, like on the zombified bandwagon of like zombification is a general I, thing. Like we can use I these frameworks am. to like think about you know things across systems in terms of zombification.
2: Um, yeah, the fit is fantastic. I I uh, have to confess that I had to brush up on my zombie lord before coming on today <laughs> wow. because uh, I hadn't realized uh, that zombification spread by by virus, but apparently that is part of the whole can be. zombie mm-hmm. thing.
0: Yeah. Um, uh,
2: so yeah, the fit, the fit's even better than I had imagined.
0: Yeah, so, what was your favorite thing that you came across when you were brushing up on your zombie lore? Well,
2: I came across the fact that the guy responsible for reviving interest in zombies- So to
0: speak. Guy,
2: George Romero. R- bringing, bringing zombies back from the dead. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so to speak, <laughs> exactly. So George Romero, the uh, director of Night of the Living Dead, is from Pittsburgh, from my hometown. Cool. So there are zombie festivals and stuff around here every once in a while to honor the guy who brought zombies back from the dead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so how do how do these sort of mental
2: you talk about these ideas spreading? How does that how does that work? Yeah, so I think so it's I think everybody understands that human beings have been living with bad ideas for a very long time. Um, and in fact, everybody admits that we, that each and every one of us hosts many bad what, ideas.
0: What do you think was the first bad idea <laughs> that humans had?
2: Whoa, that's, that, that's, <laughs> I, I'm prone to asking big early questions, but that one tops, I haven't even thought about that one. <laughs> I, I bet you, it, for any first bad idea that you find, I bet you can find an earlier one.
0: So it's like bad ideas all the way down.
2: Yes, all the every way back. Every
0: bad idea is built on a foundation of other bad ideas. Yeah. All, actually- the, all the way
2: back to the Big
1: Bang. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, I wonder if the if the better question is, what was the first good idea? <laughs> oh,
2: yeah, that came much, much, much later. <laughs> I'd say there, there, there are got to be hundreds of bad ideas for every good one.
0: I mean, was the first bad idea like, oh, I wonder if your teeth are sharp like to a predator or like, you know, or, I mean, was it like a bunch of like curiosity that then led to death or bad ideas Is in just like things that'll, you know, hijack your fitness interests in general? Like, is that what a bad idea is? Yeah, like,
2: Yeah. what I mean? is a bad idea? Yeah, I what's think a bad, bad a idea? Answer. Now you're getting philosophical on me. Okay, I love it. You're helping <laughs> my language. Um, yeah, this is the kind of the big philosophical question at the heart of my project. So it tends to come up. Um, there are different ways to define badness when it comes to ideas, but most people agree that falsehood is a bad making quality in an idea. Or a piece of information. I would argue that there are also ideas that are true but harmful. Um, I mean, just think think about uh, a true fact taken out of context in a way that misleads or that creates a misapprehension. I would argue that that's uh, relevantly similar, shall we say, to a falsehood. Um, False narratives Um, rigid ideologies, um, conspiracy theories. These are all, for me, examples of of bad ideas and also examples of mind parasites because I take it as one of my axioms that every bad idea is a mind parasite.
0: Oh, or maybe every successful bad idea or- is it's it like being a bad idea? Like it's like a badge. Like to get to like being a bad idea, you have to be like good in some ways. Kind of like um,
2: you, you at least have to be good at spreading. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so wait, is there like a is there a, a ecosystem of competing bad
2: ideas? Like, have you have you heard of the internet, Dave? <laughs> 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 Let me tell you. <laughs> um, yes, it's called social media.
1: <laughs> okay. And so, so on social media, bad ideas are competing.
2: Is that what's happening? Well, so information competes for attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in, a, in any information economy or attention economy, um, certain things uh, draw attention away from other things. And so you can think of individual bundles of information as competing for mind share, if you will. Um, And the ones that do a better job of it tend to spread through cultures and infect more minds. Um, How's that as a down payment on an answer? I I think there was another piece of that that I was (laughs) queuing up. Remind me, bring me back to to your question. Well,
1: we were just sort of talking about how bad ideas compete and, you know,
2: the... Maybe even how they evolve could oh, be a follow. And, and right, and, and why social media has become such a place for the spreading yeah. of bad ideas. So it turns out that um, social media posts that express strong emotion, especially outrage or or that 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 fearmonger that generate fear, those tend to spread more widely than more dispassionate ones.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so there's kind of an arms race for more and more inflammatory material. In fact, the more inflammatory you can be, the better your odds of becoming a, a major social media influencer. So think about Alex Jones, right? Is he is he particularly smart? No. Is he particularly well-informed? No. What What's he got that so many others don't have? He's outrageous and he's willing to be, uh, willing to go to, he, he knows no shame.
0: When you said the word inflammatory, It made me think, right? You're talking about mental immunity and like inflammation. Like, is there a way in which by actually like stimulating like our systems of like, oh, that's like a bad idea or that's crazy that it it gets more attention share, which then – in some way confers like higher fitness to those memes even if it's not directly getting into the brain of the person who's responding it's getting more attention to the meme perhaps from other brains that can lead it to have higher fitness overall yeah. it's like yeah. it's like extended phenotype manipulation it's like manipulating Someone who doesn't like the idea to like respond and get all in a huff, which then like attracts the attention of other people who might actually take up the idea.
2: This is fascinating. So, and you're you're calling attention to the way in which inflammatory information can actually spread and inflame passions, even without like taking up residence as belief, say,
0: Mm -hmm. right? Um, Yeah,
2: and and that's fascinating. I'm not aware of any really detailed study of how that works, but I'm fascinated and think it would be worth examining.
0: Right, because all of this is happening in this, you know, complex ecosystem, not just of the ideas themselves, but the social environment that, you know, we're all occupying in these online spaces, and then the algorithms that are determining what we're seeing or not, right? So there's, you know, there's a lot of different systems in which the fitness of these bad ideas um, gets That's, affected, right?
2: Yeah, and I think we're learning now, uh, in part through work like uh, yours, like yours, Athena, that that the social media companies' algorithms um, have been selecting for inflammatory or attention. Well, actually, we know that we know this that they're selected for their ability to keep people engaged right. with the social media platform. Yep. yep. And it turns out that being you know, level-headed is, is, does not help you in, in the battle for attention. So, so <laughs> fair-minded, yeah. no. Nah. So is it the social media algorithms or
1: is it our own internal attentional algorithms that are selecting for these?
2: Well, long before the internet, I think, was it Mark Twain? I think it might have been somebody else who said uh, a falsehood can travel halfway around the world before the truth even gets its boots on. I think false rumors... Infla- um, think of salacious rumors, they spread rapidly through gossip networks long before the internet came along. They they had a kind of trans transmission fidelity. What's the word for here, Athena? The transmissibility, I guess, mm-hmm. that exceeds that of many humble truths. Um, so yeah, the, the internet doesn't, none of this is brand new with the internet, but the internet sort of cranks it up to 11.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm still thinking, like, you know, this idea of like, what is a bad idea, and does it have to do with like the way that it affects the host of the idea, or does it have to do with the way it affects the broader environment that the individual. That's
2: a in? wonder. So, so we're free to define it either way we like. But I like to define it in in the latter way. So think about the idea that it's okay to swindle. That idea might actually benefit its host financially because he might lead him or her to swindle, but it would harm others. I would call that a bad idea, right? Um, And there are many ideas that are relevantly similar because they cause behaviors that are harmful to the the larger, to the common good or Mm -hmm. to the larger, to the welfare of of, of all of us, even if they might be uh, short-term beneficial, say for the host
1: so why are if those ideas are better for us why aren't they as sticky
2: ideas like um
1: if, uh, if, if good ideas right if i guess i am guess i'm wondering why what is it that makes these bad ideas like catch on even when they're assumingly on the internet competing yeah. with good i keep competing with ideas that are genuinely helpful right oh that's a wonderful
2: question I, I think i guess the way i think about it is that the the especially the norms that prevail in any community of discourse um, have a lot to have a big effect on which ideas succeed in the battle for mindshare and which ideas don't so think about uh, in in QAnon is a subculture, and in that subculture, wacky ideas spread um, almost un unchecked. But the community of scientists, which has a, brings a very different set of norms to the table, are far less susceptible to wacky conspiracy theories. So it's the norms that prevail in the conversation communities that we belong to that I think are one of the key determinants of whether you're susceptible to zombification.
1: So so I'm, I'm thinking about this in terms of sort of my own online communities, right? I, I like rock climbing and skateboarding videos. And there's a lot of kind of bad ideas that are express like hey, see if you can ride a skateboard down a flight of stairs or climb this thing without a rope, right? Um, but I'm trying to think of what is it that makes that... It's compelling. Like, there's something... Like, when I see it and I'm like, oh, that's a really bad idea. Like, you know?
2: Um, <laughs> so, are you saying that you're part of the problem, Dave? Is that okay? I,
1: I mean, I may yeah. be realizing in this moment that I do. I'm thinking, like... Yeah, I don't know. Is this is this part of what for people who are conspiracy theorists are they like, oh that one is out there, or
2: are they like, oh no, that makes sense? Like, I don't know. Like, I, I, that's a. I, I bet you there's some of each. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think your example of a, you know, a skateboard video that that tempts young kids to try death defying things and might even cause a few. Sure, there's, deaths, there's, that's yeah. bad because it's harmful. Right. Um, I I mean, in other words, one of the qualities of an idea is that if it's taken up in a mind and it results in certain behaviors, if those behaviors turn out to be destructive, we can we can call the idea that triggered those behaviors bad, at least in a sense. Right. Mm -hmm. Although it also
1: with those ideas, with the skateboarding ideas, they do also tap into some sort of. I think more beneficial desires, right? Where it's like, okay, you want to
2: look cool, you know, and you want to impress your friends, and so you want to be courageous. You want to be, yeah. That um, that the, the there's an artistry involved in good skateboarding. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, they're very. It's a very complex mix of good and bad in these death-defying, skateboard yeah, skateboard videos, things. right?
0: Yeah. I I want to dig us in a little bit to like the the nitty gritty of like what mental immunity is, what it means. Yeah. Um, so, so Andy, when, when did you start pulling these threads together, you know, kind of going back to our, our earlier chat, just about like using these metaphors from the immune system mm-hmm. to talk about what's going on in the brain and, you know, and how do you see the process sort of working like on a sort of like step by step basis, like what is happening um, yeah. in that?
2: So uh, Richard Dawkins wrote an article in the early '90s called "Viruses of the Mind," and he pointed out that you, you know six-year-olds are are uh, particularly susceptible to tooth fairy belief, where many of the rest of us have developed a kind of immunity to it. You might say that they're. In fact, he compared six-year-old children to immune compromised adults because they don't <laughs> just don't have the antibodies to fight off, you know, tooth fairy belief. Um, this was just a, a passing thought that where he didn't really develop it, but it really struck me. And, and I, so I spent about a year, about 10 years, just kind of thinking about, gee, do minds have immune systems? And if so, how do they work? And why is it that they work f- well for some, but not for others? And um, how do you develop mental immunity? And how do you lose mental immunity? Can you damage a mind's immune system? I think the answer to that is yes. Mm. Um, in fact, the wrong ideas can compromise your mind's immune system. Kind of like, it's kind of like HIV that way.
0: Whoa, say more. So this is like almost a meta issue here, right? That you yeah. could take up certain ideas that might not just be bad ideas, but they might, Compromise your ability to detect bad ideas.
2: Exactly. So imagine, think of the idea, it's okay to accept things um, without evidence. That idea can make you more susceptible to other bad ideas. Mm Mm-hmm. And there are, I think, many other, many other. so um, I actually argue that there's this great big fat bad idea that's sitting under all of our noses and that's had a big impact on the, it's helped to compromise the immune system of our culture. That idea is that everybody's entitled to their beliefs. Everyone's entitled to their opinions. Now, I think in a legal sense, that's true. We don't want governments running around telling us what we have to believe, but it's, just not true that I have a moral right to indulge in misogynistic delusions. I don't have a moral right to engage in white supremacist fantasies. That's just wrong. And there are many other examples. And and the way the concept of rights works, you're not supposed to do anything to interfere with a right. A right is something you're never supposed to infringe upon. Well, if I have a right to my beliefs and somebody raises questions that disturb my beliefs, they've interfered with my beliefs. So according to a prevailing orthodoxy, namely everyone is entitled to their opinion, we're transgressing against each other every time we ask ourselves tough critical questions. We're actually infringing on one another's rights to believe if we ask each other tough questions. All of that follows logically from the proposition that we're entitled to all of our opinions, so it's time. We, so I argue in the book that that's a, an idea that compromises mental immune systems. It's deeply compromised our our culture, the cultural ethos we belong to, and it's made it very hard to enforce sensible norms of responsible thinking.
0: That's heavy. That's really heavy. Yeah. So so are are you saying that like. That people might like if if we say that everybody is sort of entitled to their beliefs, that then what necessarily follows from that is that you can't interfere or that you shouldn't interfere. And the problem is sort of in that like not interfering part well,
2: all of us here, I assume, are fans of critical thinking, and, yeah. we, and we know that critical thinking done right can disturb or interfere with beliefs. You think critically about a belief, and you, you can lose your belief in it. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of causally true that critical thinking uh, interferes with belief. Combine that with the idea that you should never interfere with a right, and we have a right to our opinions. And you've already, you've got all the axioms you need to prove that critical thinking is transgressive, of of a fundamental right, of a deeply fundamental right. Interesting.
1: (laughs) in In the context of the internet, right? Critical thinking is welcome, I'd assume, but it doesn't necessarily
2: eliminate Bad ideas, right? Yeah, um, I like to say that I don't think critical thinking skills are up to the job of taming cognitive contagion in, in the internet age. We, for about a, a hundred years now, we've been trying to spread critical thinking as the antidote to bad ideas, and it's just—I think it's becoming obvious that critical thinking skills alone are not enough. And I'll give you a clear example. Suppose I'm given some uh, really hardcore critical thinking skills in college and then I graduate and just use those critical thinking skills as an ideological weapon to just um, slice and dice every argument that competes with my ideology and to fabricate rationalizations for my ideology that's critical thinking turned up to 11, but it sure as heck ain't mental immunity. It sure as heck ain't a recipe for fair-mindedness or curiosity, or um, it's not what what we're really trying to do when we teach critical thinking. So in other words, you can be too critical for your own good. Actually, that's not the same. That's a slightly different point. But
0: <laughs> be I, too critical for everybody's good. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so as you're talking, I can't help but think back in our conversation to Dave's skateboarding videos and how like, I mean, part of the issue is that like bad ideas can be fun, right? And like bad ideas can be a lot more fun than critical thinking. Um, So, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily an inherent feature of bad ideas that they're more fun than good ideas, but there are a lot of bad ideas that are more fun than than good ones, or th- and then the process of like sifting through to figure out what information is you know more useful or veritable or whatever. I think that's
2: right. I mean, if you if you go if if you read about uh, you know interviews of Trump supporters, many of them were like, "Yeah, I supported him because at least he's interesting. You know, <laughs> his, his outrageousness is, is is at least not boring.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I voted for him." Um, I I, I delivered a set of workshops on an Air Force base that was struggling with polarization um, issues. And I encountered some young uh, Air Force cadets who were surprised to even meet a pointy-headed philosopher who thought it was important to think responsibly because they've grown up in a time when just doing stuff that's fun and outrageous and owning the libs and stuff that, that that was all just good, clean fun, in in their world. And when they were, were asked to come take my workshop, they were suddenly invited into a very different world. And I did not, I I, I did not live up to their their expectations of uh, pointy headed liberal professors because I was not just completely wrong headed about everything. By the end, <laughs> we ended up being quite good friends. Um, but it was. I, I could I could see them struggling with the idea that they had an obligate that they had duties, obligations, to think and speak responsibly. That was kind of a new thing to them. So I
1: I have a question, sort of going off of this and off of the ways that I feel and I think I'm not the only person who feels that this country is very divided, right? And we've sort of gotten into our little silos. Um, What does mental immunity look like and how is it different from simply mental quarantine? Because I think my Mm. fear would be that it's
2: just all of us in our own little mental homes. Yeah, so one way to prevent uh, viruses from spreading is is to quarantine people, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Enforce social distancing, um, isolate them. Um, In immunization... Immunity is quite different because you actually go out of your way to expose people to, to micro doses of the, of the ah. very thing that's, that's dangerous so that their bodies, or in, or in this case, your mind's immune system, can learn to recognize them. So, so it's not about building walls around ourselves so ideas can't get in. It's letting in ideas, uh, even bad ideas, slowly until you get used to them and you can spot them. And that way we don't have to build walls around each other.
1: Okay. So are we we at the time where we can ask how to do that? Or do we have other questions? Well,
0: can I, can I push this? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I like, I like fun ideas. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put that out there. I like fun ideas, even some that aren't true, Because that's what a lot of stories are. They're like, you know, they're wrong. They're not truthful. They're something that we have spun from our imagination. But they can contain within them, you know, a sort of landscape that allows us to do things and explore things that we otherwise couldn't do. And Stories
2: are amazing that way, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, and so you know, stories can be great ideas. They can be very untrue, Um, but they can provide ways for us to engage with each other that can be really valuable—not just as as individuals, but as collectives too.
2: Yeah, and 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 stories are really interesting, right? Because they 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 appeal to us and. In, in very visceral ways sometimes. A well-told story will grab your attention and keep it for a long time. And and th- there's some really interesting work that suggests that stories kind of break down your, your mental resistance to new ideas and open you up to learn things, sometimes more rapidly than you would if you were mm-hmm. kind of cagey and, yeah. and suspicious of everything. So stories, I think, have a huge role to play in, in any good culture, any culture worthy of the name. Mm-hmm. They certainly have a role... Well, they do play a role in spreading bad ideas. False narratives are are very, very can be very dangerous.
0: Right. So then there's the question, you know, why is it that stories are able to get our mental immune system to stand down? And and you know, I mean, thinking about conspiracy theories, right? I mean, many of those are stories with characters and tension and, you know, like they're they're not just a fact. Yeah, dry fact.
2: Yeah. Um, so well, all, of, all of fiction uh, is arguably, in a certain sense, false, and yet it's important and valuable, or much of it is important and valuable. I mean, I think one of the big, one of the important features of stories is that they let you simulate, they, they trigger a mind simulation A story helps you enter a scenario and run the scenario to see how it turns out. Um, And all the, I think cognitive scientists are more and more think that the that the forebrain, that the human neocortex, is all about trying to run more and more sophisticated simulations, so we can get guess the future, more predict the future more reliably and running just dry simulations where the stakes are low. Like when you're sitting around as a kid reading a story and it's all pure fiction, your your mind is spinning out scenarios and and trying out causal connections and trying to figure out how the world works. And you can learn a lot about how the world works just by reading about fictional characters.
0: Mm -hmm. Right, so you can kind of learn these broader truths even through these narrower fictions sometimes. I think so. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, also, you know, it it strikes me that when we talk about you know reading fiction or watching a you know show or playing a video game or something, right? There's this idea of suspension of disbelief, and we mm-hmm. could just as well say suspension of mental immunity, right? You let <laughs> let that down, maybe, <laughs> yeah. um, because you know if you think about it, it's going to be much more cognitively taxing to you know, every, for everything that you're representing in your brain or everything that you're interacting with to be like tagging that, Oh, but that's not true. And that's not true. And that's not true. You just say, okay, I'm just going to go into a different mode now and pretend that all this is true and interact with it as if it's true and then just remember later you know that like it's not real
2: <laughs> yeah that, that that's exactly right and 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 of course sometimes suspending disbelief that way and just entering into a fictional narrative or whatever is is transporting um and and important so last night i i saw a, a tv show on the making of the new avatar movie oh mm-hmm what and, and I got to tell you, the original movie. I know it's kind of some people loved it, some people hated it. But for me, it was genuinely transporting. I, I love I, it. I, just, I love it. So. I found I found yeah. the world of Avatar Pandora was just extraordinary. And and this, it looks as though Cameron has done that again. I don't know how good the story is going to be, but I, I, it looks vi- visually stunning and transporting. And I I think that's important. Um, I mean, it's clearly fiction, start to finish but important fiction in a way.
0: All right. So, so here's a question then let's say, you know, I tell you both a story that is, you know, not true on some level. Um, Like, you know, there's, there's zombies like right now on my door. Right. And like, I'm trying to figure out what to do. It's really just my dog, but, um, you know, there's, there's zombies at my door and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And then like, you guys are like, Oh, we'll like get into this and like improv with her a little bit. And then we're both kind of like, you know, talking about, you know, zombies, um, at the door. And then we, we kind of create a, <laughs> Have you guys heard about balance.
1: this thing? I don't know if you guys have read about it, about zombies that now pretend to be people's dogs. Because oh. apparently, this is a big thing. Um, it is? Yeah. That they show up. There's a new strain of zombies. They can look exactly like your dog in order to let you in. And then, once, once you let them in... It's over. Be careful so. be careful
2: <laughs> of you. Oh. Dave's good at this improv thing, isn't
0: he? <laughs> yeah, he's good at this improv thing. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, so we can create these, you know, alternate realities that exist not just in our own minds, but in our in our collective minds pretty yeah. easily. Um, and we can use those to potentially, you know, play out possibilities of the future. And we can also use them to try to potentially interpret the past, what Mm -hmm. has happened. Um, and so things that are, you know, speculation or improv or whatever, they can turn into shared realities. I think if people are, you know, together representing them and kind of on the same page, and then they maybe kind of like slip a little bit from, you know, being, Uh, understood fiction to being Mm -hmm. fact. Like I, at least I imagine that sometimes that's what happens with like conspiracy theories. Is like people are like, oh, haha, the the lizards, yeah. You, you, oh, you're into the lizards too, yeah, me too. And then they're like, oh yeah, the lizards. We're all into the lizards, and it's like true for them in a way.
1: I mean, just thinking about the zombie dogs, right? Like, there's a thing I remember, like two years ago when people were like, hey, I hear there's a disease that's going to come across, and it's going to just wreck america and i was like okay right like i've heard this before i've heard this with sars i've heard this with ebola and then i remember a friend of mine like being like yeah i don't think i'm gonna go to my friend's wedding in seattle because i'm really worried about this disease and it was like come on you know but then apparently i don't know if that was real how do we know the zombie dogs aren't real so, <laughs>
2: <laughs> there's probably differences between those two. On it. I'm going to let
0: my zombie dog in.
2: Oh my gosh! No, don't do it! Don't do it! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh. I hope the zombie dog can't spread oh. through uh, through the internet.
1: Okay, she seems all right. Yeah
2: <laughs> so far. So, so zombie dogs can't may not spread through across uh, well, Zencast. So,
1: so but, Andy, um, I've heard that once you let a zombie dog in, it takes over the host and then <laughs> the person <laughs> is actually the zombie.
2: So, <laughs> oh, I love the word play here.. Host.
0: <laughs>
1: nice. um, I, so I have a question about zombification of ideas that goes back a little bit because one thing we've talked about in terms of biological zombification. Mm -hmm. Um, throughout other episodes like things like toxoplasmosis and how it affects rats and it makes them like cat urine and these other sort of like wasps that take over cockroaches is sometimes the host creature loves it right it takes over the parts of their brain that make it like this is the best thing ever Woo! we're all gonna go get eaten by cats (laughs) so do these ideas do something similar Mm -hmm.
2: Well, you've heard of the philosopher Daniel Dennett.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, he but tell he us- opens his his book about the philosophy of religion by telling the story of a a, a small microbe called the lancet fluke that reproduces in the stomachs of what? Well, sorry, it's it's carried by ants, but the Toxoplasmosis microbe needs to get it find its way into the gut of a cow in order to reproduce. Mm -hmm. And so the uh, lancet fluke actually hijacks the ant's brain and gets it to climb up uh, stalks of grass to where they're more likely to get chomped by a cow and end up in a cow's stomach. So here's an example of a microbe that's actually commandeering the nervous system of an ant and sending it to its own death so it can reproduce. And of course, this there's is all an so, analogy for Dennis. There's Dennett. so
0: many examples of this kind of thing in biology. It's all over the place. Oh, right? Right.
2: And 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 Dennett's suggestion was that this is far more common in the world of ideas than we like to think too. Ideas can spread at the at their hosts' expense. They can get their host to do self-destructive things. They can get their hosts to sacrifice their own interests. Think think about the person who gives their entire life to spreading the gospel or spreading the uh, to, to proselytizing
0: or it's teaching sacri- evolution to every but wait a second, <laughs> maybe that's maybe, a good maybe. idea. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
2: the <It's a> question worth <laughs> asking, Athena, are these parallel cases? Yes, in all fairness, we have to ask both questions.
0: <clears throat> no, but we do get hijacked by spreading ideas for sure, good ones and bad ones, right? And sometimes the ideas are good, but they could still hijack us against our. Well, own evolutionary interest to spread them even if they're good. I guess I was I was trying to say that in a roundabout way I, about I guess the I guess the question
1: is who is benefiting? Who is benefiting here?
2: Is there so is there a person benefiting or
0: the idea itself? The fitness of the idea.
2: Yeah, I think we have to take seriously the idea that ideas can spread at to their own benefit but to the harm of all human to all of their human hosts. Mhm. I think that examples are are too numerous to so so uh, a a colleague and friend of mine studied the spread of witchcraft beliefs in early modern Europe and he analyzed very closely who was who benefited from you no know, certain people gained power by spreading accuse by by accusing people of witchcraft but but this almost always came back to bite them in the ass like they ended up getting mm. accused themselves right mm. So it turned out a very detailed historical analysis of how witchcraft beliefs spread. The answer to the question is certain witchcraft beliefs spread because they were better at spreading, and other (laughs) witchcraft beliefs died out because they were less good at spreading.
0: Do you have any examples of the good versus bad witchcraft beliefs? I just – I'm fascinated (laughs) now. Well,
2: I I can give you an example. To my my way of thinking, they're all bad ideas. But but, um, the idea that witches can – so in certain parts of Europe, the idea – Idea rose that witches could could spread by sorry could travel by broom broomstick, mm. and all of a sudden this meant that you could you could accuse a hundred women within a ten mile radius instead of just the three women who might be within walk within walking distance of the of the satanic ritual that occurred on a certain night. So certain festivals of witchcraft were said to have happened. And then the question is, as of rounding up all of the witches. But if witches can travel by broom, you have to round up a hundred witches, not just the three, two or three witches who are within walking distance. And so, where the concept of witchcraft combined with the idea that witches can can travel by broom, the the accusations got much bigger. The show trials became bigger, and that infected other, mm-hmm. triggered other uh, waves of. Accusations. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now were so, these? Oh, uh, uh, were these ahead. witch
1: trials benefiting somebody though? Were they?
2: Um, it's hard. It's hard to find anybody who was a clear beneficiary. I mean, it basically tore the social fabric. It destroyed a lot of towns. It destroyed trust among people. Um, there were some people who, you know, r- rode the accu which accusation trained to early riches or fame. But it the better explanation seems to be that their minds were hijacked by things that weren't even serving them well.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and in this case, the ideas that um, sort of allowed uh, just for a quicker expansion of the, you know, the audience, I guess. Yes. In a way there, th- this is like, you know, kind of early lessons for social media algorithms or something <laughs> like yeah. well, your audience.
2: <laughs> I, I keep hoping that, you know, the people at Twitter will read the work of, on this witchcraft belief early and, and say, Oh my goodness, we, we, we need to adjust our algorithms. We
1: need to add brooms.
0: We need to- <laughs> just add brooms. Yeah.
2: Do do zombies fly on brooms? <laughs>
1: um, they could only only the ones that can transform into dogs. So
2: <laughs> so, so just to uh, you know to bring it around to you know what do we do about these mind viruses and so on. Um. I think we can develop our immunity to, to bad ideas. Now, n- none of us is perfectly immune. We all harbor some bad ideas. Um, but it's quite clear that some of us are better at spotting bad ideas and weeding them out than others. And And the basic skills involved, I think, can be taught. So when we understand the mind's immune system scientifically, how it works, what helps it work better, what causes its functioning to to break down or or, or to degrade, then we can start redesigning our culture so that ira- contagions of irrationality, outbreaks of unreason don't spread as as easily
0: mm-hmm. I, I think I, I'm still not a hundred percent clear on like what we still mean by a bad idea like is it just is it something that's harmful to the hosts fitness and or fitness of others? Is that a bad idea? So here's the thing.
2: This is the kind of question that will occupy philosophers for the next thousand years.
0: Yeah, but uh, functionally, pragmatically, for thinking about mental immunity.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I I can approximate what what I think we should mean by, by, uh, I think an idea that is both good and useful has a strong claim to be a good idea. And a claim that is either false... Or harmful.
0: For either the host or others.
2: For either the host or others. um, Has a serious strike against it and probably should be viewed with a jaundiced eye. So we should try to fill our heads with claims that are both true and good for humanity.
0: Mm.
2: (laughs) And anytime we indulge in beliefs that are either false or harmful to self or others, um, there's an opportunity to rethink there and to put our thinking in a, into a better place. So so I think that's a pretty good rough and ready concept mm-hmm. of good idea, yeah. bad idea. And we can go a long ways with that, even before we address the, the hyper technical questions that some of my philosophical yeah. friends are raising. Would, reasonable yeah. start.
1: Would it be safe to say that the sort of I don't know whether you'd call it the patient zero of bad ideas or the first, you know, COVID one um, of bad <laughs> ideas. Is the idea that, for in order for one person to get ahead, somebody else has to fall behind? Is that is that idea laying the
2: foundation? Zero for these, sum. Yeah, this idea. Something. That's a that's a, a strong candidate for a a pretty bad one. <laughs> that, um, I, I don't know about it it being sort of patience zero or you know bad idea zero, sure,
1: but, sure. <laughs>
2: but um yeah, I mean, I, I think the idea that um, others have to lose so that I can win causes a lot of bad behavior, and so th- that would be I, let's call let's agree to call that a a pretty nasty. Mind a bug. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
0: Um. Speaking of nasty mind bugs, I know that we want to get into solutions, but before we get into solutions, I feel like we just have to go a little bit deeper with the zombie apocalypse of all of this. I know that already I'm dealing with a zombie dog in my household, so that's the zombie apocalypse going on. But I feel like there's also a zombie apocalypse of ideas that are not good, that are taking over brains, right, and making people behave in ways that they might not otherwise Behave, um, you know, and and you can think of some of these ideas as like making it into the brain, getting past the mental immune system, right? That that you've uh, articulated, and um, then proceeding to affect the neural pathways and maybe even gene expression throughout the body in ways that change people's inclinations to behave in various ways and yeah. change how they interact with others, um, and in ways that sometimes might be bad for them sometimes might be bad for others um so if we take all of this Andy, you know all all of what we know is kind of already going on in terms of brains being hijacked by bad ideas and we turn it up you know we're like okay what if like instead of this happening as much as it's now let's like turn it up 50 percent or turn it up to 11 or whatever whatever you want to
2: we're turning up you know. mental
1: immunity here no, 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 no. We're turning but, down. We're turning up the yeah. spread where well, this is the apocalypse. Okay, just, just what is to, the apocalypse the of idea. okay. bad ideas? Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, so what does that look like if if the bad idea spread is worse, if our mental immunity was more compromised than it currently is? What's that zombie apocalypse?
2: Well, so we don't have to go far for examples here. And I, I'll, let me give you, a, I think, a very a case that in my mind is a very clear one. Uh America's last president, Donald Trump, just delighted in flouting norms of responsible speech. He, he just, he, he, remember when he used a Sharpie to, to alter a, 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 a weather map and retroactively uh, justify a, a claim he had made, he was basically saying, I don't care about your evidence, and I'm not bound by this, these, these uh, norms of, of evidential, these, ex, these evidential expectations that the rest of you all are, are bound by. Some of his followers were thrilled by that, simply because he was defying norms that they feel, that, that to them feel oppressive. And yet he was trampling all over the norms that keep bad ideas in check. So for four years, we got to see one of the most power, probably the most powerful man in the world, basically defy and defile the norms of responsible speech, and we watched. Bad, and then QAnon happened, and uh, flat Earth theory is back, and neo Nazis are 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 rallying in the streets. Um, I think we we got to see up close and personal one of the. Most damaging things you can do to a culture's immune system, which is is brazenly defy the norms of accountable talk in public in ways that invite others to do so.
0: So you're saying, like, we basically were were in it, and maybe we're, we're still dealing with the aftermath of the the zombie apocalypse of of. You know, mental immunity being compromised.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think this the prevalence of bad ideas, and and not just bad ideas, but bad ideas that hijack minds and warp them. And, and I mean, think about how many people are saying that political ideologies are tearing their families apart. The people who said, I, "I can't talk to my parents anymore. I, I I don't even want to go home for Thanksgiving because I, I can't see eye to eye with my crazy Uncle Frank who." Won't shut up about people trying to take his the government trying to take his guns, but whatever it is, I mean, look, these are forces that are tearing families apart. The, this is harming people in very fundamental ways. And yeah, it's here, um, and I think it's it's tearing at the social fabric in ways that are genuinely alarming. Um, and I think the zombie apocalypse is a wonderful metaphor for for what's happening because it is contagious. It is. And the internet is helping it spread.
1: Can can I I ask a question, sort of going back to the examples you'd said real quick? Because you'd mentioned flat earth theory and neo-Nazism. And to me, one of those ideas is the neo-Nazi idea is much worse, right? Is the flat earth theory that bad? Or is it just silly, I guess, is sort of like
0: just wrong
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i mean but is it is because to me it doesn't necessarily seem wrong in a way that's harmful right
2: yeah i I would say that the overall amount of harm being caused by flatter theory is is pales next to the amount of harm being caused by you know neo-fascism um but when you indulge in irresponsible thinking in one area of your life, it can damage your mind's immune system, leaving you more prone to other forms of, of kooky idea. So, so there's been a really interesting study by a team in Canada that basically says if you take the idea that you have an obligation to change your mind when new evidence comes in, if you take that idea seriously, you become less susceptible to conspiracy thinking and political zealotry and uh, flat Earth and, and climate denial, and it goes. You can go down the list. The willingness to to change your mind in the face of evidence is like the linchpin of the mind's immune system. If that idea is operative for you, you are have a certain degree of immunity to a number of bad ideas. And then if if your religious bringing upbringing tells you, no, 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 it's more important to accept things on faith that can damage the mind's immune system.
0: It's interesting because ultimately, you know, if what you're saying is true here, that we need to remain open to evidence for our mental immune systems to be healthy. That's basically saying we have to be willing to let things in, in order for our immune system our mental immune system to be healthy.
2: That is a you've just juxtaposed two things in a really interesting way there for me. I, I love what yes, yes, and yes, and it, and there's a curious little that you're yeah, willing to let stuff in <laughs> is important for your ability to keep things out.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: yeah, because I think in part because if you let in the wrong stuff and grow attached to the wrong stuff, then you become willfully resistant. To new to real evidence or new evidence. So so going back just again
1: to climate change, right? Because I accept that climate change is real essentially on faith. I accept it because somebody who I believe is an expert on climate change has told me this is real. And I don't think I would have an easy time determining that. Right, the the flat Earth one is an interesting one because I like and I like thinking about the flat Earth because I can try to figure out how could I figure that out on my own, and it feels like the sort of thing that I could probably call a friend in Europe and sort of say, "Hey, is it dark there?" You know, or things like that. <laughs> but some of the but there is doesn't there come a point where we have to trust other people?
2: Yeah. Um, w- wow, wonderful question. Um, I guess so. I know what you're saying when you say that. To a certain extent, we have to take it on faith that climate change is real. Um, I'm going to push back slightly by saying that there's, I, I, do, I think there's some important differences between accepting the testimony of, of climate scientists and taking something on faith in, in the religious sense. Um, mm-hmm. That there are similarities, and you're and you're not wrong to call attention to the similarities, but there are also important differences, and and because of that, I I would urge you not to use the word faith. I think you actually improved your own description of the situation when you replaced take it on faith with take it on the testimony of of others.
1: Hmm. Oh, that, I suppose, to-
2: but but I guess what?
1: Well, I mean, this is this would be a whole other episode, possibly. But I think when I think about Let's say the Tooth Fairy, right? That comes from this idea of not just trust any information on the street. It's trust your parents, right? Trust an authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. Maybe the moral of the Truth fo- Fairy is that we shouldn't always do that. But
2: um, the Truth,
0: the Truth Fairy, the Truth
2: Fairy, yes. Um, <laughs> hey guys, yeah. I made that very same verbal slip on the Joe Rogan. Experience. Oh really? The truth fairy, <laughs> and, and and was contacted by some of his listeners who said you got to write that, and so I've written a children's book called The Truth Fairy, and if any of your listeners really? want to publish an awesome kids book that teaches critical thinking to eight-year-olds, I've got the manuscript. I just need I just need to hear from the, the ah. publisher.
1: <laughs> but but I think even awesome. I mean so I think when we think of parents, and I think for a lot of people when we think of religious leaders i grew up you know somewhat religious and i think that i am looking to people who have achieved and when i look to scientists i'm looking to people who have achieved a certain degree of success in a certain field whether that is academic or whether that is sort of living a life that i find admirable right um and so uh i guess what i'm trying to figure out is how do we
2: how do we still do that While building mental immunity. Yeah, Um, I I mean, I think you're doing doing the right thing. And so, in any complex society, there's going to be division of labor, Um, and in any society that's concerned to understand a lot of things, there's going to be division of cognitive labor. And so, smart people saying, you, you know, end up saying things like, "Well, my expertise is music, so I'm going to let I'm going to trust the the experts on nuclear physics to." What what they tell me about nuclear physics that's that's just smart right that right. that's and and the trick here is trying to f- figure out who the genuinely reliable sources are so if you put your trust in a reliable source you're liable to your mind is liable to fill up with true beliefs if you put your trust in an unreliable source then you become then that unreliable source becomes a kind of a, a transmission vector for for un, bad ideas.
1: Okay. That's interesting. But now if I put my, if I look to the wrong, if I look to somebody who's an expert, because I could totally see this idea of, oh, I've got to figure out something about nuclear physics. I'll ask my music teacher because he seems real smart, right? (laughs) Um, And I like how to determine...
2: I'm not sure I even know what the question is. I'm just processing what you're saying to be honest <laughs> well, well, there is a phenomenon where where somebody becomes an expert in something and they start getting so full of themselves that they fancy themselves experts on pretty much everything and then they you know venture outside of their realm of
0: oh, you mean being a public intellectual? <laughs> um,
2: I've always wanted to be one of
0: those, <laughs> yeah, me too. So. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> there, there are there are pitfalls on the road to public intellectual, and absolutely big ones. So,
1: so it's now a time to start talking about solutions. Yeah.
0: I need to know what do we do? What, how do we, how do we cultivate um, that you know mental immune system? And and actually, also before we get into that, there's this. Um, I've I heard you say a few things, you know, about kind of our responsibility in terms of like what we're actually thinking and then also what we're saying and um, that there's like a moral dimension to this. And I, I want to hear about that just like explicitly, like what, like you think we all have a moral responsibility to not think certain things and think other types of things. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm just curious about that maybe before we talk about what we should be doing. Because yeah. if there's a moral element to it, ethical side, you know, then that's that's a, a cool thing to explore as well.
2: All right. So I'll start with the latter, and we'll come back to the former. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a chapter in my book called The Ethics of Belief. Um, and I build here on a really famous exchange between a, a brilliant Harvard psychologist who defended the ethics of of believing in God, and an equally brilliant Physicist who th- thought it was ethically wrong to believe things without evidence, and their arguments played out brilliantly. And I explore those arguments and and show that both men had a piece of the truth. That there's a larger truth here. That um, that in order to really understand the difference between good ideas and bad ideas, we have to learn from the debate they had about over a hundred years ago. But um, but yeah, I think part of developing a strong Mental immune mental immune system is involved in recognizing that you have obligations, um, ethical responsibilities vis a vis belief. So here's a, here's a common point raised by my students when I teach this stuff. Um, why should my beliefs and my thinking be constrained by ethics when it's only my overt behavior that can impact others? So so thoughts and beliefs don't impact others directly. They can only harm others indirectly. So at least on the face of it, we don't really have ethical responsibilities with regard to belief. We only have ethical responsibilities with regard to external overt behavior. But I think that's wrong, as my students themselves discover for themselves, because if you entertain beliefs, you're actually sowing the seeds for different behavior down the road. Uh, if you indulge in, I don't, I don't know, self-serving beliefs, at one point in your life, you become more likely to indulge in harmful beliefs later and end up harming others. so so the the way I read this debate, the physicist who said that we have that that there is an ethics of belief and we need to learn to take it seriously in order to cultivate our minds properly, I, I think we need to bring the ethics of belief back and teach it so that everybody knows how to think responsibly.
0: So what do we have a uh, ethical responsibility to believe or not believe, or is about the process of how we come to believe things where, where does the ethical and moral piece come in?
2: Um, well, I, I mean, I guess I see ethics is shot through everything. So it, it's not that it comes in, it's that it's already there and it, mm. it it's kind of already everywhere. Um, I mean, no matter what we think, or no matter what we say, we we could be thinking or saying or doing something different that might have a, a better impact on others. And that makes every decision a moral decision. There, there, are, there are ethical dimensions to every decision we make. And we can either tune into those considerations and take them into account. I think, I think that's what, the most ethical people do, or we can tune them out, and that's often not a good thing. Does that, yeah, speak to you? Okay. So, how can we? So, how
1: can we promote this sort of ethical thinking on a global level, not just in college campuses, but just around the whole? You know what I mean for everybody.
2: I, I, I I've been. Asking myself this question for a long, long time, um, I think people who live in university environments get to enjoy, a, a, there's a, there's a marvelously invigorating and mind protecting thing that happens when you belong to a community of people who are really curious and who like to test each other's ideas. I mean, it, it, everything becomes more interesting. Um, you become, you You bump elbows with physicists who can tell you how how, how fundamental particles work and you bump into mu- music teachers who can tell you how harmony works. Um, and so it's, I think we should build a world where everybody gets to live in something like a university community where learning all the time out of passionate level of learning is just what everybody does. That would be a world where cognitive contagion is much less f- common. Um, or
0: when it happens, it's a good kind.
2: There we go. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> yeah, that, learning
0: is, I mean, teaching, right? It's like you're trying quite, to transmit.
2: You're quite right, I think. That's right. So by contagion, I mean of the bad kind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, what we want to do is we want to make, we want to create cultures where good ideas spread rapidly and bad ideas have a hard time. You know, getting mind share, any mind share at all, and the more open and tolerant, and and the more critical thinking is normalized, the the faster we'll get there.
0: Makes sense. What, what are some practical things that we can do in yeah. our day to day lives to increase our? Mental immunity to support that mental immune system to cultivate the like you know mental analog of a good microbiome, right? Like you, <laughs> want the, you want the ideas in there that are going to help you process everything else, not uh, interfere. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, here two here are two of my favorites. I I can I could go on about this for a long time, but here's a couple. So it turns out doubts are the antibodies of the mind, S- and especially the little quiet qualms you might have about something. So somebody comes along and, and floats an idea, and you have some qualms about it, but you brush them aside, and then the idea turns out to be a really bad one, but you've invested <laughs> in it, and now you've paid a price. Turns out if you'd listened to that, those qualms more carefully and kind of let them speak to you, qualms are trying to tell you something about the idea that or the action under consideration, and a lot of times they'll reveal a dark side to the thing that you have qualms about but you have to learn to listen to that little voice in your head that says you know something something's not quite right here so i think one of the best things you can do is learn to listen to your doubts
0: mm.
2: the other thing that's really important to do i think is is to treat the challenges of others not as threats but as learning opportunities So it turns out that when we perceive other people's questions as threats, we tend to get defensive and the conversations go downhill and we tend not to learn from them. That's actually an autoimmune disorder. That's an utterly, completely, perfectly analogous to autoimmune, to autoimmunity. Um, But if you learn not to overreact to challenging information, or even to ideas that challenge some of your core beliefs, if you learn to say, oh, that's interesting, let me fight down the sense of panic and give you the time of day and hear you out and listen to your objection, maybe I can learn from it. If I can postpone the panic that might set in otherwise and really just try to learn from different points of view, our minds start to work better and we get get better at spotting bad ideas.
0: Mm it's interesting to think about the reasons sort of, you know, that, that people might be defensive. Right. So one is like, if people perceive it as like a challenge to their status, you see this in mm-hmm. academia all the time where it's like, Oh, who are you to challenge my idea? You know, I've been working on this for 45 years and you're just some, you know, young person who yeah. came into listen to my talk. Right. So there's a, there can be like a, a, a status threat that's perceived. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you know, if there, isn't, if there isn't actually, you know, uh, if there's actually a benefit to uptaking that information, mm-hmm. then yeah. there might be some situations where the bad ideas that are already in the brain are hijacking the mental immune system to get it to, like, respond as if that new thing coming in is a threat.
2: You're a quick study, Athena. I, absolutely. I think this actually happens. I think bad ideas that settle in as kind of cherished ideologies then recruit the mind's immune system to do battle with n- good information that might disturb disturb them
0: yeah and any any ideas right that are good at doing that are going to be more likely to persist in brains and more likely you know to have more transmission opportunities as a result
2: i think we can we can now Make zombification a real science. I think we have all of the f- things we need now to say <laughs> the science of zombification has finally arrived. <laughs>
0: Well, I think that's maybe a great place for us to to end this delightful conversation, um, Andy. Thank you so much for sharing your brains with us. I have to say that uh, you know there was there's no need to put you know take my mental immunity down to listen to what you have to say, and I'm glad that I didn't because um, really great brain sharing happening today. So well, thank, thank you. you.
2: It's <laughs> been a real pleasure for me, uh, um, both you, Dave. David, it's it's nice yeah. to meet you as well. Oh, wonderful. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, let's do this again sometime. Yeah.
0: Sounds great. Thank you. <laughs> and if the whole world says that we're we'll crazy. Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and Zombified Media.
1: And we would like to thank everyone who made this episode possible, including the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University,
0: the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and the President's Office at ASU,
1: the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics
0: of Bad Ideas and Good Ideas,
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) the the Flat Earth Society.
0: (laughs) All all the brains that helped make this podcast, including Tal Rom, who does our amazing sound. Mm -hmm.
1: Or so he'd have us believe. And Neil Smith, who does our illustrations.
0: Lemmy, the creator of our song, Psychological.
1: And our entire Z team, who does so much from transcribing to uh, social media to who knows secret stuff. They don't even tell us about
0: being so, there for us whenever we have a breakdown.
1: That's true. That's their yeah. main job. So <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: I, in all, um, all seriousness though, like Z team, you guys are amazing and you help support us in so many ways. So like extra little shout out. Thank you so much.
1: So, um, and you can all follow us and support us. You can, um, drop your mental immunity and just, check us out on all platforms.
0: We are zombified media. So you can look us up there. Um, zombified yeah.
1: media.org. Right.
0: Um, well, so I uh, zombified media is our handle on, um, on our platforms. And then uh, at zombifiedmedia.org you can see all the other things that we're doing, including um, channel Z, and uh, learn about our, you know, zombie apocalypse medicine meeting, if you want to learn more about that. So you can like link out to all of the things. And then if you just want to go and see like all the cool podcast covers, you can go to zombify.org and like browse, you know, all of the cool illustrations that Neil has made of all of our guests over the years and then link directly to the episodes there. So, um, yeah, so zombified.org is where you go for everything podcast related.
1: All right. And uh, if you want to support us on Patreon, because we still, we have a Patreon. We do. We have a Patreon. And we have a patron, right? So thank you to our patron. (laughs) So
0: so we're um, educational, no ads. And so uh, please think about supporting us um, as little as $1 a month on Patreon will help us keep making these awesome episodes. Um, And also, don't forget to buy.
1: Our merch, merch. yes. (laughs) You know, our hats have a special uh, coating that helps protect your brain from bad ideas.
0: They do, yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So buy those hats, um, buy those stickers. If you put those stickers on your computer, they'll actually protect your computer from viruses. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, And if you wear our t-shirts, you'll... I don't know. You'll live forever. Yeah. So they're really.
0: We have the best merch.
1: They're really good. (laughs) So, uh, all right.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you all for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. I know it's
1: crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you. Makes me act the way I do.